<laughs> Good to see you. And those of you worshiping with us from Alma and from St. John's and also online. You know, you made a decision to come today. Uh, hopefully it wasn't reluctant. Uh, you weren't had to, no one had to drag you out of the bed to get you here. But do you know how many choices there are? There are over 4,000 religions in the world today. And three quarters of the world worship in the top five in attendance. Even back in the day of Paul the Apostle, you might know the story of him in Athens when he goes up to the place where they debate and he notices so many different images of gods around and he sees one that has no name on it and he says, I see you are a religious people because you even have one to the no-name God, and I have come here today to talk to you about him. And he talked about that God because our God is different. He's unique. He's the only living and true God, where all the other 3,999 religions are people trying to find God through different systems and concepts and beliefs. But none of them have the doctrines that we have. Their doctrines actually conflict one with another, and there's only one God. You couldn't have a God that is so confused that he can't figure out who he is to so many different people. But he has revealed to us who he is, and he's done that in the Scriptures, that through the power of the Holy Spirit he gave to men of old who wrote these things down as they were inspired by the Spirit, and they have passed down through history to us. And the Bible is filled with doctrines. I get very upset when someone says, well, I don't want to talk about doctrine. C.H. Spurgeon, the famous pastor from England in the late 1800s, was asked once, can we get along without doctrine just for once? And Spurgeon said, I remember the story of people who were talking about a ship that sank. And he said, I heard that the captain had said, I don't need charts. I've been doing this for a long time. I know my way around. I don't need someone who can read the stars to tell me which direction to go. I don't need anyone who needs to measure the depth of the water in case I'm running aground. I don't need that. I know how to do that as they sank. And his point was this, without doctrine, we sink. Without something solid to hold on to that God has taught us through the scriptures, we sink. And that's why we've engaged ourselves for the last five weeks in the book of Ephesians. The first half of the book is all about doctrine. It's about the doctrine of the church. And inside that, the unity of the church. Now we come to the point in our study of this book where the apostle is transitioning into not just doctrine, but the practice of that doctrine. What are we supposed to look like? How are we supposed to live as those who believe this doctrine? And he makes that transition starting in chapter 4 of Ephesians. But it's interesting that he still can't quite let go of talking about unity. 
So he wants to set up this, this whole thing about how we're to live one more time in the basis of unity. So we're going to look at unity and then at diversity. Read with me as I read from Ephesians chapter 4, the first six verses. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see that emphasis on unity coming out again? One true church. It's so sad that people don't understand that. We are in the church of the now. Those who believe in Jesus who've gone ahead of us into his presence are in the church of the not yet. But it's we who believe in him, either there or here, that make up that body called the church. And there is just one of those. And its head is Jesus Christ. Because no man comes to the Father unless he comes through the Son. So we have this one true church who is led by the Holy Spirit. One Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. Again, this is doctrine. He is the third person of the Trinity who changed your and my heart so that we could hear that gospel. We could recognize our need for a Savior and we could receive him into our lives. That one Holy Spirit who takes us into truth, who reminds us of the things that God has said to us in his writing. He is the one who authored the scripture and so he knows the word of God to burn it into our hearts so that we'll hide it and not sin against him. This Holy Spirit who sustains you and me throughout all of life. We're the only belief system, the only religion, which we are not, we are a relationship, who has this Spirit of God living in us. So we have one Holy Spirit. We have one Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, he is the one who came and gave himself for you and for me, who paid the price that the Father required in order to do away with the penalty of sin. He's the one who defeated Satan. He's the one who rose from the dead and defeated death. And the one who waits for us as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And someday we will all go to him. This one Lord, one Jesus Christ. We have one God and Father of all, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father who sent him to redeem us, the Father who sacrificed his only Son, the one whom he loved. We have this one Jesus Christ, and it's by this Father, this Son, and this Spirit. You see how Paul has brought together the doctrine of the Trinity. That word is not mentioned in Scripture but all throughout the Bible, it's implied that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here, Paul puts that back together for us to see. Now, you and I were called into a relationship with this God. 
We were called into that relationship through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when we came to a knowledge and an understanding in our hearts of that need for him and we received him, then we were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit. So we have this this desire, this, this knowledge of being one. We are one. We are one together. We're one with every other church that believes as we do about the Bible and Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. We're one. And we're one with all of those who have already gone home into his presence. What a massive oneness that is. It's an incredible unity so that when you rejoice, I rejoice. We all rejoice together. When we are sad, we all weep together. We feel the things together. We are one. And in this oneness, we find our ultimate unity. One of Pastor Allen's favorite scriptures says that when the body is in unity, the blessings of, the God, of God come down upon us. And we really believe that, that God is blessing what we are doing. It's a richly blessed community that we have. But we are one church with three campuses and an online group. We are one church. We're not three, just one. And that unity, God is continuing to bless. I've served in churches for over 45 years in seven different churches. And I promise you, as wonderful as those other churches were, I have never been in a church that was as unified at every single level as this one. And that is God's blessing. We are a blessed people. But with that blessing comes a requirement. And the requirement is that we, each one of us, individually, being as diverse as we are, learn to function together in the midst of that diversity. Now, I'm not a soccer fan because they made the mistake of calling it football. <laughs> but it is a fascinating sport. And I, I happened to watch uh, the first game of the Women's World Cup where the United States uh, beat Vietnam three to nothing. And I later went back and I looked online and I looked at the roster and the ages range from 22 to 38. And there are people of all sizes and shapes. Of, uh, they're all United States citizens, but they come from different cultures. And as I watched them play on that field, with the limited knowledge I have of that sport, I could tell they were one. It was amazing how they would move and everybody would be right where they were supposed to be, I suppose, because it worked that way and they scored. I just can't imagine watching a game where only three points are scored. I mean, really? You know, it's, it's got to be more than that. But it takes phenomenal athletic skill to play the game of soccer. And they did it individually, but they did it with that mindset of oneness. Now, you and I have been called to strive in the midst of our unity to use the diverse gifts that he has given us. Every one of you in here has gifts, and those gifts are from the Holy Spirit. So they're his gifts that come to you. They're not your gifts. And when he came into you, he gave you all of his gifts. Now, he's not going to use all of them at the same time in you. And some of them he may never use in you. 
But he will call to the surface those gifts that he needs you to use to edify the body of Christ. He'll use those. So are you using your gifts? You know, as we ramp up toward the fall, are you considering how can I best use my gifts in the body of Christ at Community Church? Because that is what is necessary for us to continue to strive to do that. So let's talk about this diversity. Paul only makes three requirements. They're, they're real brief. There are three things he said we need to do to live out. They're attitudes that are, are lived out. They're, they're fruit of the Spirit that are lived out. Just three things. When I was in high school in, in my freshman year, football coach came to me, American football. And he said, you're going to be our new center. That's the guy in the middle of the offensive line who snaps the ball to the quarterback. I said, why am I going to do that? He said, because you're the only guy on the team who can remember to do two things at the same time. <laughs> My first thought was, we're in trouble. <laughs> well, Paul's asking us just to do two or three things at the same time, to, to let the Spirit come through us. Look what he says in, in verse 2, the same passage. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. That's all we have to do. That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? It's what we would call the doctrine of sanctification. It's being set apart. It's becoming more like Christ, because certainly if anyone ever was, Christ was humble, Christ was gentle, Christ was patient, Christ is long-suffering, he puts up with us. And so we are to be like him, now, one of the times that Christ did something, he, he did it in the confrontation with a young man who was a centurion. A centurion was a Roman guard. And this particular guard, somewhere along the line, had heard about Jesus. Because when he came to the man, Jesus, the centurion had a servant at home who was sick. So look, he already was a man of compassion because he could have just said, ah, it's just a servant. I'm not going to do anything for him. But no, he had a heart for him. And he came to him. Look what he says in Matthew 5, 8. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Wow, that's great faith. I mean, that's really amazing that this guy who is not a follower of Christ, he hasn't been around him, but he's obviously heard things about him. But in him, there is this knowledge that this Jesus heals and it doesn't matter what his location is, wherever he is, he can heal. That's faith. Faith is, is believing in something that's going to happen before it even happens because you know who's going to make it happen. That's true faith. And I've seen that happen a lot. I've seen people with compassion. I was talking with an individual the other day, and he said, your wife's about to go on her mission to Moldova for three weeks to work over there with refugee widows from Ukraine and with widows in Moldova. 
Is there anything that you need? And I thought, what a, what a sweet offer. And the only thing I could think of was, well, she needed a travel companion to go with her because I'm occupied and I'm not able to go this time. And we found a young woman who's been with her before, who loves her dearly, and who is a very strong, powerful Christian woman. And she said, I will go, but I'm not sure I'll be able to cover all of the expenses of it. And I said, by faith, we're going to believe that God's going to take care of it. Now we're just two weeks away from that event. And it was on Friday that I was talking to this man. He said, well, what does she need? I said, well, we do have this one lady who wants to go, and she's going to go, but uh, she, by faith, and I, by faith, believe that God's going to help pay for it. He said, well, how much is it? And I told him the amount, and he said, come by tomorrow. I'll give you a check. Wow. You see, that's believing for God to do something. But remember last week we talked about when you ask God to do something, it needs to glorify him, it needs to advance his kingdom, and it needs to edify you. So I did not benefit from that. My wife didn't benefit. The girl didn't benefit. The kingdom benefits. And the man gets the blessing, and the women in Moldova get the blessing. Everyone gets the blessing. So humility is when... You're willing to put yourself to death. Paul says, I die daily. What does he mean by that? He means that he understood who he was and what God had called him to do. I understand who I am. Hopefully you understand who you are. I know what God has called me to do. And I know that each time I have the privilege of preaching the word, that I'm going to ask God for that special anointing to preach the word because I am not the one giving you the message God is. I am the messenger. And the gift he's given me is to proclaim his message, not mine. And so I know who I am and I know where I am and I know that the greatest danger I face is walking off of here and having one of you say, that was really great, and me going, yeah, it was. That's a death knell. There is nothing I do that I do apart from Christ. To God be all the glory. We should not be looking for that glory because we're not going to find it. And if we think we found it, he'll take it away because God will humble you however he needs to do it. I loved my high school career. I was the editor of the annual yearbook and there was a section in there, some of you may remember that you had one called superlatives. It's most likely, like most likely to succeed, you know, best athlete. Uh, I didn't get any of those. Okay. And the one I really didn't get was most likely to be a preacher. Okay. No way that would ever surface. But I say that to say, when you figure out who you are and what your gifts are, and you start using them, do it with humility. Not false humility, not false pride, but just agree with God that you gave me this gift, Lord, and as long as you'll give me the strength, I'll use it for you. God's interest is in who you are more than it is in what you do, but he's still interested in what you do. 
So you can't have someone who comes in and just sits down, and we call them the ones who sit and soak and never squeeze the sponge. Okay, if you are one who is receiving the word, and you feel in your own heart and in your mind today that, well, God's really calling me to do something, then start praying. Pray for what it is that he wants you to do. There are tons of things that need to be done in the kingdom of God, right in this unity, and in Alma, and in St. John's. And we need to use these gifts for the benefit of those who are coming to know Jesus Christ. What you do is very important to him, but you do it with humility. Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, there's that unity again, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. Here it comes. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We usually think of humility as something that we have to give away that I can't claim that. I have to give it up. Jesus didn't give it up. He put it on. He became humble by putting humanity on. So he added to himself our nature without losing his nature. So he is one person with two natures. He has the nature of God and the nature of man, and, and they're distinguished from one another. They're not confused. But everything he did, he did as the God-man. And in this case, he humbled himself. So he never exhibited pride in being the son of God. He never exercised the power that was available to him to stop all of the things that came against him. Why not? Because he had a mission, he had a call from God, and he was going to fulfill that call. And it meant that he could not choose to sin. He had to actively never choose sin. He had to be perfectly obedient and perfectly humble and perfectly gentle and perfectly long-suffering. You know, he had to exhibit the very fruit of his spirit because the Bible says the spirit is the spirit of Christ. So we have his spirit in us. And what he is doing is he is conforming us to his own image as we use the gifts that he's given us and maintain the unity. It's all coming together. So I have no pride in my salvation. I'm so thankful I'm saved. But I don't have pride in that because I didn't do it. I don't have pride in my education. I'm just thankful that God gave it to me so I could know the things I know to use for his glory. So I am thankful, but I'm not prideful. And I believe that that's how the centurion was. You see, when Jesus saw that centurion, he looked through eyes of perfection into the imperfect nature of this centurion. And what he saw was faith. He saw that this man actually believed that Jesus could do what he said he could do. 
And he also indicated to Jesus that, look, I'm a man under authority, and I have those under me who are under authority, and, and we do whatever we're told to do. So he's now acknowledging that you will do what your father has told you to do. So I know you can heal my servant. You don't have to come that distance to do it. You can just speak, and it will be done. So Jesus looked at that centurion with compassion and with a desire to honor the man's faith, to build the man's faith, to expand the kingdom. And Jesus said to him, go and let it be done just as you believed it would. And at that very moment, his servant was healed. Wow. So his faith was real because he believed he would be healed without him going, and he was. You see, this gentleness, this Savior that we have, loves your faith. He loves you to have faith in him, the assurance of the things you hope for, the, the evidence of the things that we can't see. He loves that kind of faith. And he has given you that faith, and now you're building that faith, and it's time for you to exercise it by being gentle and being kind. That's what I would love to be more and more. There's a story, one of the best I've heard in a long time, true story, about that gentleness, that, that kindness of Jesus Christ. There is an author who's written some commentaries, and his name is Frederick Dale Bruner. And in his commentary on the Gospel of John... He tells the story of a doctor, true story, who is in the hospital room with the patient upon whom he's operated and the patient's husband. Here's what he says. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in a palsy, clownish way. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, have been severed. And she will be thus from now on. As her surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. But nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her husband stands by the bed. And together, they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze and touch each other so generously, so egregiously. And the woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is. I understand. I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with God. Unmindful of me, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers to show her that their kiss still works. Gentle, patient, and bearing one with another. Just like Jesus does 
with you and me. Jesus bends himself and fashions himself just like you to meet you right where you are and to give you the kiss of life so that you will have it eternally. He has fashioned himself in our image that we might be conformed to his. Come to the Lord, use his gifts, believe in the truths that scriptures teach, and you will live eternally in his presence. That's a promise that comes from God, not from me, but I guarantee it. The thing is, you can't do this alone. You need the Lord's help. He will, he will shine the light into your darkness. He will be the one who will heal your heart and he'll turn your life around when you come to him. Let's stand and worship the Lord together.